getting it. We would like to salute tonight. The major cockamamie fake of our time. <laughs> We've had a few in our time, haven't we? Have you ever, have you ever in your, in your uh, you know, watching the Watergate and you know, watching all this stuff, you know, and it's, it's really fantastic. Here's a, here's a little story that, that uh, you may find that, you know, it's really typical today. I, have you ever had a feeling that, that you've been in the hands of charlatans? No, I mean, I mean, really seriously. Have you ever gone into a place where you, you thought what was going on was legitimate, and then you begin to get the suspicion that, uh, that, the, that something was totally fake? You couldn't pinpoint it. You couldn't put your finger on it. Well, I had an experience like that here a couple of uh, semesters ago, which I will not go into, but uh, very, very enlightening. <laughs> very enlightening. And, you know, it's easy to fall into that today. And, well, I'll just read the piece to you. You can, you can just make your own mind up. It's a, it's a piece. Well, listen. The lecturer was Dr. Myron L. Fox, an authority on the application of mathematics to human behavior. His topic, mathematical game theory as applied to physical education. His credentials, impressive. His audience, 55 medical educators, psychologists, psychiatrists, educational administrators. And he delivered a major address in a major institution before legitimate uh, people and pulled it off. And on a topic like mathematical game theory as applied to physical education. Now, that sounds very official, doesn't it? The only problem with the above scene, which actually took place, was that Dr. Myron L. Fox was a fraud, a professional actor decked out with phony degrees and publications to seem respectable. He had been coached to present his topic and conduct the question and answer period with, quote, an excessive use of double talk, neologism, and non sequiturs, and contradictory statements. All this was to be interspersed with parenthetical humor, meaningless references to unrelated topics, reported his coaches. Dr. Fox was part of an elaborate scheme devised by three medical educators to find out whether an audience can be seduced by the style of its presentation. Do you hear what they're doing? In other words, if you have a certain style, you can get away with damn near anything. And they wanted to find out if it would work in a, a genuine technical subject. A style. Well, they wanted to find out. They were right. Not one of the 55 expert victims of the hoax recognized it. And one claimed that he had read Dr. Fox's publication. <laughs> His non-existent books that he had written. How do you like that? Even so, not all of the victims were impressed by what Dr. Fox said, but with Dr. Fox. One thought that the presentation was, quote, too intellectual. Another described him as being somewhat disorganized. But I'll tell you this. If you had Einstein addressing 55 guys, out of 55 guys, three or four of them would have some complaints, especially if they're, if they're uh, educators themselves. You know, this is a, 
endemic thing. So that yeah, was pretty fantastic. But overall, reported the authors of the study, the 55 subjects, quote, responded favorably at a significant level to an eight-item questionnaire concerning their attitudes towards the lecture. The authors of the study were Donald H. Naftulin, director of the Division of Continuing Education and Psychiatry at the University of Southern California, John E. Ware, a professor of medical education at Southern Illinois University, and Frank A. Donnelly, instructor of psychiatry at the University of Southern California. That's pretty impressive. Says their hypothesis was that given a sufficiently, quote, impressive lecturer, an environment of the lecturer, for the lecturer, even experienced uh, experts participating in a new learning experience can be seduced into feeling satisfied that they have learned despite irrelevant, conflicting, and meaningless content conveyed by the lecturer. But he has to have fine style. <laughs> I've said this for years. I have, in fact, uh, that brings up, you know, and, uh, that brings up a point. How, I just wonder how much actual content of practically, and, and uh, by the way, on converse, the reverse is also true. You could get a really great expert who, if he has poor style, would be often denounced as a fraud and a phony <laughs> and put him down. In other words, uh, the, the, the style is all. Proust, you know, said it. Proust made this comment. Uh, it was a very great line, you know. It's all style, vanity. So that's what it's about. And if you can get really a great performer, a good performer, not a great performer, good performer is coached. He's, he knows what he's doing. He, he knows how he has confidence on his feet. Believe me, he can lecture anybody and get by with it. It was just a smattering of uh, insight. Well, in fact, one of the great co great frauds of all time. You, what was the name of that great fraud? That uh, Remember Life Magazine did stories on him? In fact, they did a movie starring Tony Curtis on him. He had successfully taught higher mathematics. What was the name? Fred DeMera. That's right. And in fact, he even, he even became... <laughs> he was a surgeon. That's how they tripped him up. He was performing operations. And then when they gave him a, 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 they didn't trip him up because the operation was wrong. They tripped him up because they were going to give him a high naval award. And somehow they took out his records, you know, to put it on his records in the Navy. He had joined the Navy as a fraud. And it turned out that he was, uh, was not this doctor at all. He had a different, totally different name. And <laughs> that's how they caught him. He could still be, you know, performing uh, uh, upper lobotomies uh, with no, with no, uh, with no apparent, uh, apparent problems. But now, you see, I, I feel that, uh, that this happens far more than we would ever guess. Now, we know the guys that were caught, but I, I think this happens far more than we guess. I'm going to tell you a little story now. And, uh, and, I, and uh, I, I don't want to be... I think the seven-year limitation of guilt clause has taken effect here. But a few years ago, when I first came to New York... And this is a story I don't think I've ever told on the air. Now, you ready for this one? <laughs> a few years ago, when I first came to New York, I was, I was, uh, I was out, uh, you know, doing acting, out acting jobs, and I was, I was out on the street, freelancing, struggling like hell to get, get a foothold in the scene here. And uh, I had this agent. I don't even remember the guy's name anymore. The cockamamie little agent, a true... A true uh, phone booth Indian. Uh, you know, he's a sharp little guy on the phone, constantly in and out of the office, yelling and hollering. And there was always a crowd of guys waiting in his 
in the ante room, there's little office guys holding uh, trained beagles on their laps and, and uh, seals that played the bugle. <laughs> oh, it was fantastic. So if you've never been through that scene, you wouldn't really appreciate the quality of it. I remember one day sitting, sitting in his office, there's this big crowd, this crowd of totally... They, they look like people out of a George Price New Yorker cartoon, you know, the kind of the earmuffs and the, and the sousaphone and all that stuff. And uh, this girl is, is uh, sitting next to me, and, and uh, she was Oriental. And I said, uh, I said, what, I, what, uh, what do you do? I figured she's an actress. And uh, she says, uh, oh, she said, I, I, uh, I play stag shows. I said, you do what? She says, yes, I play stag shows. <laughs> I said, oh, I see. And, and in other words, my booker was booking stag shows. You know, you know the ladies that make the brief but spectacular appearance at uh, various stag shows. And uh, so, you know, it's it purely a profession with her. So we're we're sitting there waiting for our moments. And finally, I get in to see the guy. We talk a little bit. And finally, he says, yeah, he can see what he can do for me. So a couple of days later, I, you know, I get pictures and all that stuff. A couple of days later, I get a call from this guy. And uh, I was living in this cheesy uh, Times Square hotel at the time. You know, you, you gotta, you gotta, uh, you just have to live the life of the of the uh, the sleazy Broadway life for a year or so to really know it. Now you can go through Times Square. You can see uh, the drugstore, the the the, uh, the drugstores and the the porny jobs and all that. You can walk past the bookstores and the movie houses. This is not the same. You can even go in them once in a while. But when you live there. I mean, okay, how many times you've seen The Midnight Cowboy, man? It doesn't even come near it. And uh, I was living right, you know, here I am. I'm living in this cheesy hotel. So the phone rings downstairs. It didn't even have phones in a room. Yet. No way. See, So the phone rings apparently downstairs at the desk. And the way they worked it was any time the phone rang, the, the elevator guy would go up in the elevator and he'd, he'd, he'd holler down the corridors, whoever was running on the phone, see? So I hear, show me you went on the phone. So I said, okay. So I came out, and I go down. And I said, oh, boy, what, what is it now? What now? Because uh, I never got any calls. See, at this point, I was really scratching. So I went down the elevator, and I picked up the phone at the desk there. I said, yeah. And, hello, this is Manny. Now get over here quick. I said, well, what the? Oh, who, who, who? Manny, Manny, the agent. Get over here, you fucking nut. Get over here. So I hang up, and I run down the street. The agent's got a call. I figured, oh, this is my big break, see? So I run down the street, and I, I go up. 18 flights of stairs to this this crummy little office with the people sitting around with the trained seals on their laps and stuff. And I go in, I said, hey, Manny, what's up, see? And Manny's sitting at his desk there looking, you know, very official. He says, yeah. He says, take this and look it over. And he's got a script. I say, oh, by God, you know, it's great. So I take the script and I go back outside to the ante room and I sit down and I start reading it. And I can't figure what the hell this is all about. It's a it, it, it's apparently a lecture, and it is a lecture. It's a lecture. And the lecture apparently had to do with a, with high com, with a high-compression V8 engine. Yes. And it, it, it was particularly concerned with the carburation of this high-compression V8 engine. And the lecture was apparently to... To, to other people who knew about the uh, high-compression V8 engines, because <laughs> it was filled with all kinds of interesting uh, uh, mathematical allusions, and, it, and there were points all along. It says, present slide. It would say, at this point, slide. It had little things like that, see? So I brought the thing back in, and he says, what do you think of it? I said, well, 
are you sure you gave me the right thing, Manny? I mean, you know, uh, this is a, l- a lecture here. Uh, he said, "Yeah, what do you think of that? What do you think of it?" And I said, "Well, well, it, it's pretty good, I guess." He said, "Well, he says uh, I want you to go over and see these guys. Here's the address," and he gives me a card with the address of the, of a of a place over on the east side, which is a side of town I didn't get to very often those days. So I go across town by foot. And incidentally, Manny says, don't forget to wear your suit, wear your best joint, uh, put on a dark tie, I want you to have your hair combed, and get your, for God's sake, shine your shoes, will you? So there I go. You know, I go back to my hotel room. I put on my only suit, which is a dark suit and a white shirt, and I put on a, on a tie, my, my dark tie. And I, you know, I, didn't, I had no idea what this was. And so I went across town to the number, and it was in one of the big, major buildings in New York. Okay? Uh, let's put it this way, comparable to the Seagram building, one of these big, elegant, fantastic buildings. Up I go in the elevator, and I arrive out in front of this, this room, and here it were a whole series of, of numbered offices, just numbers. Number uh, uh, 7920, uh, we'll say. Big, beautiful, oaken door. She was really, really plush. And so I, I open the door, and here's a girl sitting in there with a pink telephone. And uh, she's uh, apparently a little reception room. Very quiet and plush. And I walk up to the desk, and I said, uh, uh, excuse me, uh, I'm, I'm supposed to. She said, oh, she said, uh, your name? And I give her my name. She said, oh, well, uh, you'll, you'll be next in just a moment. Ah, you know, I just to have a seat, please. So I sit down, and here all around on the coffee table with these very elegant magazines, uh, Wall Street Journal, Forbes, Business Week, Advertising Monthly, and all these very official magazines. So I sit down, and I'm the only guy there at this point, see? Well, five, five minutes go by, <laughs> and the door opens, and out comes another guy, obviously an actor. I can see he's a fellow actor. He's at this look on his face. You just know each other. It's a curious uh, you know each other. And he's got a copy of the script, too, and, and uh, he's being ushered out. And uh, there's a man standing there in the doorway, very elegant gentleman. He says, well, he said, uh, if uh, if we decide, uh, uh, we'll give you a call. Uh, uh, has uh, Miss uh, uh, Gubbard there got your number there? And uh, she said, yes, I have his number. All right, thank you very much. Well, who's, who's next? And there I am. And so the girl says, uh, Mr. Shepard here. So... Uh, he said, oh, good good afternoon, Mr. Shepard. We're certainly pleased to meet you. Would you come right in? And I step into the room. I figure they're casting a play or something. You know, I've got the script. And I walk into the room, and here, sitting in this room, it's a, it's a conference room, a big table. And uh, there's about seven or eight guys who look exactly like they're out of a, out of a uh, Class B movie starring uh, Edward Arnold. You know, some movie about big business. These are tycoons, uh, out of executive suites, silver hair, uh, all huge guys, you know, smoking expensive cigars. And they, they're sitting around this table. And uh, the man who's in charge says to me, he says, well, uh, gentlemen, this is uh, Mr. Shepard. Uh, Mr. Shepard uh, is here to read for us. Uh, would you please uh, step up to the front of the room there so the gentlemen can all take a good look at you? So all these guys are looking at me, you know, they... They're uh, craning their necks. They're just looking me up and down, looking my shoes and my suit and all. And uh, the man in charge never gave me his name. He said, he said, all right, he said, 
But uh, begin to read, he said. We'd like to hear how you sound. We know that you haven't had time to memorize the, uh, the continuity, but just give us a little reading there. And so I said, uh, mm-hmm, all right, uh, fine. I said, excuse me, one thing first. Uh, what what the kind of a character? Do you want this man to be a, a, a teacher or what? Uh, not exactly. Uh, let's, let's say he's a, uh, a young corporation engineer. And he's talking to other engineers. Let's, uh, how about that? So it's all very good. So I picked up the script and I started reading. It says, uh, gentlemen, we're here today, uh, to take a look at the new development in our engineering department on this V8, uh, number 722 engine. Uh, later on, there'll probably be a lot of questions from most of you about, uh, uh, production problems that we are going to have to face when we put this engine into production, uh, cost overage problems, that sort of thing. Uh, we will have a question and answer period, and that will be conducted by Mr. Sylvester L. Gumpox, uh, Dr. Sylvester Gumpox, who, as you know, is the head of the research department, and he'll be along here to answer any questions you have. Now, as you know, I'm from the uh, developmental department. We, our duty and our our uh, our our job, really, our tack is to develop new equipment, new engines. And uh, I'm not really particularly concerned with production here this afternoon. I'm talking mostly about theory. Now, uh, would you please uh, show us the first slide? I'd like to show you the engine, which has not yet been unwrapped. We've not shown this to the press. This is the first showing of the engine itself. Uh, this is the pro model. We may have the first side, the slide, please. And then there was a little thing on the script that said slide. And uh, then I said, now you'll notice, you'll notice the low profile of this, uh, this uh, engine. We've, we've tried to keep the, the, uh, the profile of it low. We've tried to maintain a low center of gravity for stylistic reasons. Uh, you'll notice also, too, below the the, uh, the gas chamber there, and as you notice, below the water pump. That's been redesigned, and you notice the fins have been added to give added cooling. In fact, our tests show that uh, 0.0037 degrees of coolant is obtained per mile per hour uh, at the maximum torque on this engine. Now, well, it was it was a script, and then he says, okay, fine, after I read about 15, maybe... 20 lines of it. He says, okay. He says, hold on a minute. He says, fine. I uh, said, uh, would you wait outside? And I went out to the, I went out to the ante room and he sat down. I totally missed the fine. And uh, I sat in the ante room and about five minutes later, I was sitting there, you know, looking at the girl. She kept looking at me and answering the phone. About five minutes later, the man said, Mr. Shepard, you please come with me. I walked back into the room and the three guys said, well, I think you'll do fine. Uh, we've decided, we've made the decision, you're going to be it. Now, uh, your name, when you use this script, will be Mr., and I'm inventing a name here, I won't use the actual name. Your name is Dr. Clarence Youngson. And, uh, you live, uh, just outside of Detroit, but don't get into that. Uh, your name is Dr. Youngson, and, uh, you've been with the firm for three and a half years. And, uh, that you're, you're, uh, your, your, this is your first appearance before these men. Now, if you have any questions about this character, uh, we have Mr. Clifford who will give you further briefing on it. While I sat with Mr. Clifford then, who was another guy that came in, and the other three left, they went on to their important lunch, 
And he was a very dynamic type. And I, I talked to Mr. Clifford for about an hour about this script and, and various things I should and shouldn't say, where I should get into it deep and shouldn't, and so on. And he said, okay. He said, uh, go home. He said, read the script over. He said, we want you to deliver it verbatim. We don't want anybody reading off the paper now. Uh, you can carry it with you. Uh, you can pretend like you're you're refreshing your notes from time to time if you do run into problems, but uh, we want it to be delivered as if it's from memory. And I said, okay. So I took the script back to my hotel room, and then I called Manny. I said, Manny, what the hell is this? Manny says, you got the job. And I said, I do indeed. He says, okay. He says, there's 150 bucks in it for you. He says, uh, of course, I'll take my usual 10% off the top plus 5% expenses. You know, all these phone calls back and forth and having to sing mimeograph. I said, okay, thank you, Manny. It was my first job. So I was really excited. So I sat down and I read this thing over and over and over again until finally, by about four in the morning, I figured I had it down pretty cold. The whole, the whole kitten to was a half an hour split. Well, uh, they had given me a number where I was to appear the next day. Another building, another room number and uh, a whole set of different circumstances. So sure enough, the next morning I arrived at this building, very impressive building in midtown Manhattan, up to the 10th floor, and they had they had a kind of a cocktail party set up. It was doing these people were drinking uh, drinks and so on, and I arrived at the, and Mr. Clifford was in. He says, oh, yes, he says, Dr. Youngson, we're certainly pleased to see you. You made it there. How was your trip out? And I said, fine. I said, oh, it was a good flight. Uh, and he said, uh, by God, he says, I hate that, that flight from Detroit. He said, uh, that, that, that can get very awful rough at this time of the year. And I said, yeah. Well, uh, Dr. Youngson, I'd like you to meet uh, uh, Mr. Wanamabe here. And over here is Mr. Fig Newton. And uh, you, you've heard these men, uh, heard of all these men. I said, yeah, it's good to see you. And they're, oh, yeah, they're big cheers. And I said, well, we might as well get going, gentlemen. All set, let's go. And we walked into the next room, which was a presentation room. Had a had a screen, a beaded screen, a lectern, the whole bit. And I stepped up to the lectern. I said, "Gentlemen, uh, we're here today to have our first look at the new eight, uh, the eight-cylinder, the new V8 uh, high compression engine, uh, number six SJ7 GT, which has been under wraps. We've been holding this under wraps now for, as you know, for eight months. There's been a lot of question about it." And uh, you're being privileged to be the first to see this uh, this engine, uh, providing, of course, that the that the plan, the budget, and our projected plans are approved by the board. And of course, a lot of a lot of what you have to say is going to mean the difference in that, fellows. And of course, I'm writing all I'm doing it right off the script, see. And they're sitting there. There's about forty or fifty very official-looking guys. So I proceeded, and I said, uh, "May I have the first slide, please?" And chunk. Down came the slide, and there's this engine. I had a pointer. I said, now you'll notice the, the uh, cooling pan has been changed, the low profile that we have on this new engine. Uh, this is for styling problems. Uh, as you know, the, the long, slim hood is, uh, is uh, one of the more important concepts of our, of our next year's styling, so we're going to have to have a low profile on this engine. We've been able to do that by dropping the pan down, and I'm pointing away there, see, it went fantastic. I really began to dig it. I really loved it. <laughs> I was walking around there, you know. I was Dr. Young, and I was talking about this fantastic new uh, high-compression V8 engine. I was discussing hemispherical combustion chambers, and I was going uh, talking about all kinds of uh, new and, uh, and uh, new magnesium alloy camshafts that we worked out using various types of formula, and it's going on and on. 
Well, when it was over, I said, now, gentlemen, uh, that's the presentation. Uh, Dr. Bullard, the head of our department, will be here shortly. I see him in the, in the doorway now. And uh, I had been briefed that the guy that would come in immediately when I followed him would stand in the doorway wearing the big white carnation would be Dr. Bullard. And I said, there he is in the doorway. Let's, let's give him a hand. He's the man that's responsible for this. And they all cheered. Hey, 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 hey. See? So at, at that point, uh, I said, now I'd, I'd like to, you know, I've been really having a good time up here, and I'd like to answer any of your questions. But I'm going to turn it over now to the man that headed the whole project himself, Dr. Bullard. Come on in, Doc. And he walked in. He says, good to see you. Good to see you, Clarence. Uh, how was your flight out? And I said, oh, fine. He said, well, he said, uh, too bad you've got to take that next flight back. Uh, say hello to the crowd at the plant. I said, okay, Doc. He said, uh, wish me luck. And I said, good luck, Doc. Oh, these are great guys. So I walked out. Big cheer. I get this fantastic cheer. I go out now. The door is closed. Now I'm outside. And, and Mr. Clifford is there. He says, fantastic. Great job. Great job, kid. Here just great job. He says, uh, you, you got your script with you? And I said, yeah. He says, well, can I have it? So I gave him the copy of the script back. He says, listen, he says, you check. We, we're sending it over to uh, to uh, to your agent. He says, a tremendous job. We, we won't forget you. I said, excuse me. I said, <laughs> Mr. Clifford, what, what the hell was all that? Oh, he said, didn't you know it? Didn't, didn't, uh, didn't Mr. Gumpark tell you what it was? I said, no. He said, well, uh, you see, these are the, the top sales representatives, uh, the regional sales representatives of the company. I said, what company? And he named one of the three major automotive companies. I'll put it that way. I said, really? I said, what was I supposed to be doing? He said, oh, you were one of the design engineers from the factory. And we were trying to get their approval of, uh, the, the, of this new engine that was going to put in next year's car. And uh, these guys have to really approve of this whole thing or forget it. It's going to cost us $28 million. We put a lot of dough into this research project. I said, but why did you, why did you have an engineer? Well, he said, look, he says, have you, ever, have you ever listened to an engineer for five minutes? There's no engineer in the world that can talk for more than three minutes about his own name without uh, getting his tongue all tangled up with his teeth. I said, oh, I see. He said, yeah. Said, Listen, he said, we never need you again. Uh, be sure to be sure to uh, leave your name with Manny down there, said, because we'd love to. You, you were great. So I walked out into the street. There I was. Automotive, mechanical engineer. For 35 minutes. And I held them in thrall. By the way, most of these guys were engineers sitting down. That made me wonder. Ever since that time, I've wondered about experts that I've been sitting down and listening to from time to time, delivering uh, expertise on television, to write books that Johnny Carson plugs. Every actor that I know of, and let's face it, friends, you better accept the fact I am that, I am an actor, that every actor I know has stored in his head millions of, not millions, not really, but he's got dozens of scripts that he wants memorized, and they're there in his head. Now, if you stop them on the street and say, give me scene one from act two of Richard II, uh, I want to hear the part of the lion, uh, he, he, he couldn't give it to you right away. But when he begins to sing, it slowly comes back, and almost instantaneously, it's all there in complete, pristine glory.
And uh, if I thought long enough about this, I could deliver the entire lecture to you. <laughs> All I needed was the slides. The slides were kind of a nice touch. I, I liked that. Uh, I liked the one that said, uh, and now would you uh, please give me slide 12, please. And <laughs> on came the slide. I said, you'll notice this is Graham, gentlemen, that uh, our, uh, our accounting department, along with the drafting department, is prepared to show you the, the differences in cost overages in the last seven years related to the use of the magnesium alloy camshaft. Uh, the percentile of breakdown is here in this left, the green bar. You'll notice the percentile of returned equipment is in the red bar and the blue represents our basic percentile margin of profit over the old turning steel uh, camshaft now this uh, this is a somewhat inaccurate chart because i personally see several mistakes here myself but in general it's fine and uh it should give you a nice idea oh i thought that was so nice a lot of little touches there so beware of dr myron fox uh, beware